Welcome to the Oak Tree Institute podcast, the podcast designed to empower Muslim leaders through education and skill development. In this episode of the Oak Tree Institute podcast, we welcome our guest, Tayyib Yunus. Tayyib is the founder and CEO of Intuitive IT Solutions and the founder of the Center on Muslim Philanthropy. He has over 20 years of experience in being hands-on and providing strategic guidance to both for-profit and non-profit organizations in the Muslim community and outside of the Muslim community. He holds an executive master's in business administration from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. We welcome Tayyib to speak to us today about how Muslim organizations, particularly nonprofits, can become more financially stable. Assalamualaikum. Welcome, Brother Tayyib Yunus. Thank for joining us on uh, this episode of the Okshi Institute podcast. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Hey, Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having me out, and thank you, Oaktree Institute, for for doing something cool like this that's uh, part of making the world a better place. Alaric, uh, we really appreciate. Um, and, and you have a tremendous background, tremendous resume. Uh, you've done some amazing things in the community, a CEO, a uh, Mashallah, um, founder of a nonprofit institution uh, that works in the Muslim community. Um, can you speak to us a little bit about how did you get here? Can you speak to us about your journey and um, your passion for working in the Muslim community and, and how it led you to kind of be uh, a leader in so many of these different institutions and the things that you're doing? Man, so, uh, you know, doesn't it always somehow connect back to where we grew up and how we grew up and then and then a big part of that is always our parents, right? And, and so my, I grew up in a philanthropic household. Uh, dad um, came early 70s, uh, and he was actually one of the founders of the Islamic Circle of North America. Mom, her family back home, you know, they were um, teachers and scholars of Hadith, her, her parents were. And, and so both of them, you know, the priority was always about, you know, service to others. Um, so, 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 so I think that was a big part of it. The other part of it was, you know, for some reason, my parents, you know, they decided to move to the panhandle of Florida in this really super tiny town that was 15 miles off the border of Alabama, which is the part of Florida that really you know, a lot of my Florida colleagues are going to get upset about this, but it shouldn't be Florida. It really should be Alabama or Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Georgia. Um, so, so growing up there, there were no Muslims. There were no Muslims, and um, we faced a lot of difficulties. And when we would come home, I would come home and talk to mom and dad about that. The the the, the typical response you would expect to hear from a parent when a child says, hey, these bad things are happening, is, hey, let's go back there and tell them they can't do this. My parents were focused on system change. They would, they would say, you know, if we leave here, if we go act and behave a certain way, then we might make right for us, but we need to think about how to make right for everyone else. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, 20, 30 years later, I look back and in that town, Alhamdulillah, the opinions of the people and even the other Muslims who have moved into this town and their children are going to these schools now. So that, that was really a big piece. Um, you know, later on in high school, um, um, I, you know, my dad kind of surrounded me with mentors, older brothers f- from other nearby towns. And as I, would, I usually call them influencers, and um, they were they were they were guys, older brothers who I could relate with and who I could have conversations with. And ultimately, um, you know, one day I was I was inspired enough to find a way to feel comfortable in my skin being a Muslim, and that's really what I dealt with. You know, back in the '80s, mm-hmm. you know, it was am I American? Am I Pakistani? Am I Muslim? What am I? And from there, the journey led me to. Um, meeting with some other brothers and connecting with uh, guys all over the state and ultimately led me to being a part of the, the, the group that founded and nationalized Young Muslims North America that you see today. And so that was uh, the first sort of um, institution 
nonprofit or social good institution um, that I connected with at a very young age that was in startup. Yeah. And, and the journey just kept going from there. <laughs> oh, that's, that's an amazing, I mean, I mean, uh, so when I know when, when we first uh, talked and we got to know each other, uh, that was an astounding fact that I got to know about you, that you were one of the founders of YM. Um, what was the driving, like, what was it at the time? And you were so young and, uh, you know, obviously it was a different kind of world from a Muslim perspective, being Muslim in the U.S. What was, what was the driving force behind that? Like, how did that come about? Where did the idea come from and the drive motivation come from? You know, um, you know, uh, when, um, uh, at a very, at a very young age, I would say the first sort of, uh, moment of truth for me was once upon a time, you know, uh, I was, uh, we, we, we would go to box on in the summers and stuff like that. And one time, uh, I, I would go there and I was with, uh, in these schools and I was learning Quran in these schools in one school. And in this one particular school, um, all the other kids were orphaned. And um, one day my teacher, he said, why don't you go out and play with them in the park? And here I am, this sort of, you know, somewhat, um, you know, comfortable living, I won't say rich or wealthy, but comfortable living uh, uh, kids from America. And he says, go to the park. I'm thinking about what everyone else thinks about as a park, green grass, slide, swing, you know, yeah. a hoop. Yeah. So I go over to this park and these guys are playing uh, and there's no grass it's dirt and they are playing with a tree limb that they've carved into a stick and a rock that they've carved into a ball and i looked at this i remember this vividly even to this day that, that it just felt wrong and i'm like how can these guys find entertainment value in this and and something's not right here and what I did was, is, you know, and I, I took all the kids to one of the sports shops. I said, come with me, guys. Come with me, guys. I went to the sports shop. And uh, I went to the sports guy. And I said, hey, these guys are going to buy whatever they want. And I told the kids, I'm like, go in there and get what you want. And the shopkeeper looks at me and sees this 12, 13-year-old American kid. He's like, how are you going to pay for this? And I reached into my pocket. I took a lot of cash out that my parents had given me, a bunch of rupees. And I landed on the table. And he backs out of the way. All the 10, 20 guys, classmates rushed the store and the, the look on their face changed my life forever because you know, I remember one of the kids vividly, he walked out with a basketball and he doesn't know how to play with it. And he's bouncing, he's like, what do you do with it? And a basketball hoop kit and a soccer ball and cricket bat. And they were just totally at that moment, paradigm shift took place. And I would say that was probably the first moment where I experienced sort of tasting, finding joy in the joy of others, finding joy in the joy of others. And when I, and I experienced it, honestly, that I think became my drug. That, that's amazing. I, I love that finding joy in the joy of others. That, so that's the ultimate driver. That was the kind of the ultimate motivation. That's amazing. That's a, I mean, it's a powerful story. Um, but it's it's a it's an interesting that that was your the major influence in in you helping others. That's that's amazing. Yeah, alhamdulillah. I mean, that was that was the first time, and then, you know, it's crazy. I'm turning forty this year. Awesome. Um, alhamdulillah. And so I went on this journey to find out, you know, what's the big deal about forty? Why? What's the significance of forty? The Prophet ﷺ and many prophets some say they were at the age of forty when they got this. Turns out there's an ayah in the Quran, and you know, there's a very specific du'a that Allah is telling us to say when we hit 40. And, and there's a piece in there at the end where some translations say, now declare yourself a Muslim. And it got me thinking a lot about what was I up until the age 40. And, you know, I, I spoke to some of my mentors and the bottom line is they, 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 what they really talk about is how you know, we're all on this this journey up until 40, um, where we're where we're working on figuring out, you know, how what's our superpower, and this is how I define it now, is is, is you gotta figure out what is that super skill Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you, and then how are you gonna use that super skill to make a difference in the world? And then by time by the time you get to 40, now you you, you 
now these are going to be the best years of your life, inshallah, where the wisdom has settled in, and now you focus on making a difference. That really is front and center for me right now. I really um, have feel like I've got clarity in, you know, what I've got to do and how I've got to do it. And, you know, ballpark the best next 23 years of my life I got to make out of it. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I absolutely love that. And, and uh, Michelle, you, I mean, you have some amazing experiences. Of course, you're a CEO of your own company. Um, you're leading the Center on Muslim Philanthropy, doing some amazing work in the Muslim community. You've been in the Muslim community for a long time. You've established one of the hallmark youth organizations in the Muslim community. So what, what have been your overall lessons? Um, like, what have you learned? What are, what are the top lessons that you've learned and in your experiences within the Muslim community, what you've learned? What are the key, key t- takeaways that you've, you've, you've got? Yeah, number one, can't be great at everything. You've got to really figure out you know, uh, you can be good at a few things. You can be okay at a lot of things. But if you really want to make a difference and you want to achieve some level of greatness, and I mean by greatness, I don't mean like legacy here in this world, right? I'm, I'm about the I'm about the after game too. You gotta think about what is gonna be that skill that I'm gonna hone in on to make great. So people, my dad actually, I'll, you know, I have an awesome relationship with my dad right now, and you know, for years he would say, you know, you should learn Arabic. You know, you should uh, memorize the Quran. Um, and, you know, one day I said to him, I said, uh, I said oh, well, if I study Arabic and study Quran and become a scholar of Arabic and a scholar of Quran, who's going to be the scholar of social entrepreneurship? Who's going to be the scholar of philanthropy and nonprofit management? I'm like, you know, um, we... And, and he totally agreed, you know, he, and, and then later on, you know, he taught me the principle of Pamkataya and how we need to look for, you know, something that's not being solved in society and how to go and fix that. So that's the, that's the first lesson. You know, when, we are, when we're kids in school, you know, the whole system tries to force us to think that we need to be A's at everything. But the reality is, is lopsidedness is okay, and specialization is okay. And we see this in the Sunnah of the Prophet, right? He, when he needed in from intel, he got the guys together that were great at getting intel. When he needed a writer, a memorizer, a builder, a plower, a business person, he had specialists all around him, and he leveraged the whole team to make a difference, to build the institution. Similarly, so that's how I think, and that's my advice, is don't try to be everything to everyone. Think about really how you want to make a difference. The second lesson is, you know, um, this is at a very young age in my life, I had a mentor come to me and he said, Thayib, who's your favorite Marvel character? And I said, Wolverine. And he said, you know, why Wolverine? What was, what was his, you know, his super power? And I said, well, his claws. And he goes, was it really his claws? I'm like, yeah, man, he had claws, he was strong, he beat everybody up. And he said, think back to the last scene of the comic. And at that time, it was the comics. It wasn't the movies yet. He goes, think back to the last scene of any of the comic books. Remember how when the world was almost over and it was going to be because this, this radioactor or radioactive chamber was going to explode. And, you know, the only way to stop it was because somebody needed to go into the chamber, live long enough to make it to the end and hit this red button to turn this thing off. Who would go into the chamber? And I said, well, Marine, of course. And then he would say, well, was it his claws that allowed him to live through that chamber? And I stopped and I said, well, no, I guess it wasn't the claws. And he says, what was it? And I said, well, it was his, his ability, his superhuman uh, healing ability. And then my mentor leaned down to my face and he said, but similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you a superpower. And he goes, right now, it's in a raw format. It is a, it is a raw talent. He goes, you've got to discover it. And that's going to be a journey. It's going to take you time to figure it out. And just sometimes you, you think you've got it figured out, but it's really not what it is. But you've got a raw talent. And when you find that raw talent, because you've got to sharpen it into a skill. And when you get it finally to a skill, you're going to have a choice. And Shaitan's going to come to you. Because you're going to have a choice. Do I use this skill to benefit me? Or do I use this skill to serve humanity, to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And so that's the second big lesson as I've, man, there's stuff on my LinkedIn profile that's not even there. I bought and sold T-Mobile stores. I bought and sold other commercial retail businesses, properties. And 
you know, I'll tell you that um, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's really about how do you use your skill to make the world a better place and, and make that your superpower. So that's my other lesson that I've learned and that I advise and coach everybody on is, is hone in on your super skill. Find that, far, find that cause that you care about. Connect your connect what you the cause that you care about to your super skill and make a difference in that area. I I, I love that. I mean, that's that's uh, some amazing advice. Um, I think particularly for young people that get confused on uh, what they want to do or looking to do a lot of things. Um, I, I love that 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 kind of that line on you can be average at a lot of things or you can be great in one thing and and trying to find that superpower i love that term um you know be able to harness it within yourself foster it and 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 uh, serve the world through it subhanallah it's just it's a basic thing you know a lot of you have created us that way it's it's an amazing amazing thing um so one of your super skills one of your superpowers is uh working with muslim nonprofit organizations right allowing them to excel level up go to that next level through whether it's management and I know fund development, those are some of the two areas that you specialize in and focus on. Um, and I know we, we've had podcasts before and ex, uh, some guests before, and we talked about like all the problems of organizations in the Muslim community, right? And, and there's so many of them. Um, but I, we really appreciate you that you have a specialty in an area that's allowing them to excel. So I want to talk about that. So what, uh, so tell us first about some of the work you do with Muslim organizations and, and nonprofit institutions. What, what, what do you do exactly? L- let us know a little bit about that. Yeah. So we're, uh, um, in the most simplest explanation, we're focused on capacity building. You know, Al-Hibri Foundation did some amazing research, which basically says in the American Muslim nonprofit sector, 90% of these nonprofit organizations do not have enough resources to fulfill their mission. Mm. And many of them, even though they've been around for 10, 20, even 30 years, Mm -hmm. they're stuck in the entrepreneurial stage. Mm. They still haven't. The, The time doesn't matter how they look, act, and behave, and what they have towards their mission basically showcases that they're stuck in early stage startup mode. They don't have enough resources to fulfill their mission. So the work is is broadly focused on capacity building. When we think about nonprofit organizations, capacity means do they have the resources to achieve their mission? Usually nonprofit organizations, resources means human resources. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they need money, it's that they need people and talent to deliver their services. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they need money, right? So, so we reframe, uh, redefine capacity, reframe uh, and look for what is capacity, what resources does this organization need, and then we, we, we help develop that capacity. Now, in the non- Muslim nonprofit sector, you know, you know uh, in the most simplest explanation, if you want to improve the capacity of an organization, there's literally three areas that you work on, right? One is, let's just take an Islamic school, for example. Let's take a civil rights organization, for example, right? These are all service-oriented. Yeah, they need to buy infrastructure, and that's why you'll have those capital campaigns that buy the infrastructure, but once you have the infrastructure, now it's all service-oriented, right? So it's payroll. Um, So if you want to improve the capacity of an organization, one area that you focus on is you upskill, you upskill the existing human resources so that they are working smarter, not harder, right? So that they are doing more with less, right? So that's one area of improving the capacity of an organization is you upskill your existing staff. The second area where you, uh, where you improve capacity is you solve the revenue streams, right? So, so, so we look at an organization and say, what is your revenue? Is it all fundraising? Is it some fundraising? And then you have earned income. Nowadays, you know, you know like on Islamic school, for example, tuition is um, earned income, and then they'll have a budget gap, and then they need to raise money for the budget gap, right? That's where the mm-hmm. fundraising comes in. Right. But, you know, so, so, so a nonprofit is either going to have a revenue stream of fundraising only or they're going to have fundraising and earned income or earned income only, right? Mm. And we consider grants 
and money from foundations as part of uh, fundraising as well. It's mm-hmm. that at the end of the day, there's a person on the other side approving that money going out from some foundation that someone left. So that's fundraising and earned income. So if you want to improve the capacity, then what we what you improve the fundraising uh, strategy, for example. Um, so so those are the two pieces of capacity building. The third piece that we focus on is is in increasing the total available human capacity. Increasing the total available human capacity of an organization. Nonprofits have a luxury that for-profits don't. For-profits, they can't get free labor. Nonprofits can. Nonprofits can do volunteer raisers. And so if if they invest in a volunteer resource strategy, then now they've increased their total available human capacity. So in the for-profit world, you have managers, when they think about implementing strategy and when they think about faces in the right places, their their entire frame is how many people can I hire based on my budget? But in the nonprofit world, you know, it's it's about coming up with strategy, faces in the right places, leveraging budget for payroll, but also budget towards increasing volunteer engagement and putting faces in the right places through your volunteer resource strategy. Mm. So these are the three areas of how we're doing capacity building. Upskilling existing staff in an organization, board development work, leadership development work, project management level level work or execution level work or tactical level uh, upskilling. How do we mm-hmm. upskill all of these layers of an organization? Mm-hmm. Number two is how do we uh, uh, improve the revenue system. How do we improve those? And third is how do we increase total available human capacity mm. through a volunteer resource strategy? Uh, amazing. I mean, so th- these are like the three pillars that I, I like to use pillars. Uh, these are like the three pillars that you work across. So can we, I want to just dive in a little bit deeper so that we can kind of like, uh, you know, we have a lot of people like they're working, they're youth director and, you know, in a, in a community or their board member, or, um, you know, they're, they're, they establish a social justice organization, like you mentioned. So let, that first, that first one about upskilling their talent or you know their human their their human resources um so how how does somebody begin doing that or where does that start uh, is it start at the top does it um start where does it start in the in community uh what if everybody's volunteer you know where does somebody start if they don't know where to start doing that so you know um first thing that i'm doing is um you know, I would I would probably inventory, um, you know, or get some sort of assessment or a pulse on, you know, my team, right? My total available human capacity. Most nonprofits, you're going to have a board, you know, you're going to have some executive director or, or, or slash CEO, and then you're going to have a, and then, then you're going to have some other staff in the organization, right? Uh, and and so I would I would I would do some level of assessment to see where everyone's at. Some people they they um, the other the other principle we have to remember is something I call the three E's of excellence uh, or ehsan um, when you're talking about a person having mastery in something, right? And you know the three E's like if I want to be an amazing baker, for example, mm-hmm. right? Uh, first thing I need is education. That's information. I need a recipe. But just because I have a recipe offline about Florida key lime pie doesn't mean that when I bake that Florida key lime pie, it's going to be an awesome key lime pie. By the way, this happened to me. In the recipe, it, you know, it talks about you know uh, uh, whipping the egg, the white, and uh, so I'm trying to do this thing, and it's not getting done right. Later, I have to call my daughter and say, hey, what does this mean, fluff the, fluff the egg white? And she goes, Dad, first of all, you need a metal bowl because it won't fluff in a plastic bowl. So what's happening here is, 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 is I'm going to the second E, which is exposure or mentorship. So my daughter, Alia, she's mentoring me and coaching me on, on what the recipe means. And then just because I read a recipe, I got the education. Just because I saw I had a mentor or I got exposure to how to do it, 
and I saw Alia had a, uh, teaching me how to do it. Doesn't mean I'm still amazing at it yet. I need to cross the third year E, which is experience, mm. street knowledge. Right? I got to go through the process, learning by doing, reflect on my mistakes. And so I've done education, exposure, experience. These three things will help me get closer to mastery of baking, for example. Mm. Similarly, when we're thinking about our total available human talent in our organization, we need to think across these three things. Now, if I've got a board that's low performing, I can't just you know, send them off to a board retreat, let them come out and be like, man, I sent, we, we spent all these nonprofit dollars on a board retreat and they're still you know, never returning to our calls. They're not reviewing reports. They're not thinking about strategy and vision. They're just, you know, you're still going to need exposure and you're yeah. still going to need experience. Right. Uh, um, and so that exposure is the coaching and development. So, you know, how we bring that to life nowadays is, you know, uh, assess everybody in the organization and then assess them across these three E's. Um, and then after you've assessed them across these three E's, then you fill in the gaps. Um, you know, if I were to, to just give you one prescription, yeah. um, you know, uh, the best dollars you'll invest in as an organization is, is um, get them a coach. Mm. You know, um, so I and, and some of the other faculty members, um, what we're doing is just have a weekly call um, with executive directors, with board chairs, uh, with development directors, a weekly call uh, where we are talking through, you know, what challenges are you facing? Where are we at with the plan? What's working? What's not working? What's green, yellow, red? Let's really talk about the red stuff. The yellow stuff, do we need to talk about it now? Do we talk about it next week? What do we, where do we need to be week by week? And sort of coach them through, you know, you know the art of execution, mm. you know? Um, execution is an art, it's not a science. Planning is a science. Yeah. You can plan the hell out of things. Right? Yeah. You can plan all day long yeah. things, um, but execution is a science. So. I love that. I love that. And how, what are some of the results? How, how, how is that? How do you, how are you measuring success and how, how successful are people going through this process with you? Yeah. So a couple of things, um, you know, um, uh, I, 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 you know, as Muslims, I, as Muslims, we understand that outcomes are from Allah. Yes, absolutely. Right? We understand that outcomes are from Allah. And by the way, I went through, I went through this process. So I'm a, I'm a social entrepreneur. I'm a young entrepreneur. You know, I'm, a, I'm an American Muslim first generation guy thinking that, you know, all the, I shouldn't say this, but I used to call them uncles and aunties who set up these organizations. I don't call them uncles anymore. I respect and love my community builders and institutional builders. But back then when I was a kid, um, you know, I used to think that everything that was done before was done wrong. Um, and I spent all my time focused on trying to um, control uncertainty, weed out uncertainties, and focus on results. One day, my mom gave me this book, and she said, this is a book that your grandfather wrote. And the title of the book is Qadr wa Qadr. Mm. And in this book, which is not published anywhere, by the way, she said this is the only surviving copy that my father wrote, and she gave it to me. The bottom line of this book, the takeaway that I understand from this book, is basically outcomes are already predetermined. Mm. And my, my mind got blown because I've gone through an entire system and I'm a CEO who plans everything around outcome. And now you're telling me that I have no control over outcome? And for the longest time, I was like, what do I have control over? Right? If I don't have control over outcome, what do I have control over? And the short of that journey is Allah has told us. He's told us what to focus on. Three things. Number one, have an awesome intention. Mm -hmm. Number two, make high quality choices mm. and do your best. Mm -hmm. That's it. So high quality choices and do your best around good intention. Yeah. So your question, your question was, how do you measure, measure the work? Well, when plans don't turn out the way we hoped for 
what we evaluate is performance in the execution. Mm. I have I have employed this concept in my for-profit businesses and in my nonprofit businesses, and the result ultimately is number one, less stressful team members, mm. right? Because we principally, fundamentally, as human beings, we do not have control over outcomes, right? So I measure performance when things work out as planned or didn't work out as planned based on how well did we execute. Did we do the research? Did we do our homework? Did we make high quality choices? Did we playbook the implementation and the execution? Did we operationalize the plan? Did we have faces in the right places? And if we did all those things right, then whether things turned out the well the way they did or didn't, we're not worried about. Mm. So that's a, a principle that I live by. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it, but in terms of um, the work that we're doing, um, you know, uh, from the stories and the research that we're when we started a longer term research um, at Indiana University, where we've now established something called the Muslim Philanthropy Initiative. And uh, Alhamdulillah, we're now performing. Um, we've got our first full-time um, assistant professor and director there, and we're uh, starting a research project, you know, to really study, you know, how well um, are these organizations performing and the ones that are attending our classes and our programming, you know, um, are we really making a difference? So that study is going to tell us, other than that, I can say, um, here's stories and examples of people where we made a difference, so we believe we are. That, that's amazing, and, and and I love the philosophy. I think that that's super important. You know, we uh, of course you know, we could do, we could plan. Uh, I love the idea of making the right decisions. Of course, the effort is super important. Um, but at the end of the day, of course, the results uh, are in Allah's hands. And uh, I think those are three essential ingredients. I, I love that, and I think that that's super important for uh, as a mindset for any person working in the Muslim community. I think that that's really important. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so, so then we talked about a second pillar, um, which is, and I think maybe we can focus here for kind of the rest of the conversation because I know that's one of the more important highlights. Not a lot of people do a lot of content for the Muslim community around fund development and the strategies. And, and so you mentioned that there was two essential parts here. Obviously, there's the revenue stream and then there's the, the fundraising. So how would you, so first, how do you assess where an organization is at? And then how do you kind of guide them towards uh, create a plan for them so that they, they can move forward in terms of their fund development and how they can grow generally in terms of um, their, at least their financial capacity. So when we're, when we're uh, assessing an organization, um, focusing on fundraising, we're assessing fundraising as an organization. A um, couple of things we look at is we, we, we do a three to five year uh, performance review on uh, things like um, uh, donor size. How many donors do you have? Mm-hmm. Uh, and at at what level are your donors giving? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the Lilly School of Philanthropy. One of the things that we teach is that there's something called an ideal donor mix. And and so when we're assessing an organization. And the ideal donor mix tells us that an organization is performing really well from a fundraising perspective, right? So that's the sort of benchmark. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, if I were to simplify it just in this conversation, you have major gifters, mid-level gifters, and, and entry, base, what we call base-level gifters, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for example, we'll assess an organization and say, you know, your, your base is really large, your mid is small and your major gifters are really, really small. Mm. Actually, some of the research now says that only 2% of the American Muslim community gives more than $10,000. Mm. Sometimes we think it's a lot more, but only 2% give more than $10,000. Mm. Um, so, and that's, so that's, that's annually, that's annually uh, in total or annually to one organization? Annually in total. Annually in total. And so, so how would you, so for uh, your, your uh, I don't want to say run of the mill, but for your normal uh, Muslim, you know, center or, or Islamic school, what is it? So how would you differentiate between major, that middle and that minor? How, what, is, what is the differentiation points, at least generally? Okay. Yeah. So there's, so, so each organization 
will have um, uh, a different major gift threshold. Okay. Right? Uh, so the major gift threshold and the way you um, come up with that is basically on the ideal pyramid mix, which basically says 10% of your donors should be giving uh, uh, 60% of your revenue. And then the, and the percentages shift as you go down the pyramid. So when we assess an organization, what we're doing is, is we're, we're looking at where their major gift threshold is. Mm. The second thing that we do is we ask them, what is your fundraising goal for the, for the next year? And let's say they come back and they say it's $100,000 or let's say it's a million dollars, right? Um, so there is an actual science. Uh, remember, planning is a science, right? So there's an actual science to um, setting up your gift sizes. And we use something called a gift range chart. The gift range chart tells you how many donors you need at what level, right? So let's say you have an organization. I'm actually working with an organization right now. They raised 600000 and now they're saying they want to raise a million. And so when we assessed their database, we found out that their, their, their base was, was uh, according to industry benchmarks, best practices. Their mid-levels was really fat, and their major gift was really tiny. And then when we looked at the million, the million dollars that they needed to raise, we said your existing donor pool cannot support a million dollars. So then we, we come up with the campaign strategies, which are, you know, either we've got to decide to reduce our goal and modify our budget, cut back, Mm. or we say we're going to keep the goal at a million dollars. And now we need to think about those fundraising strategies to grow the base, grow the total pyramid to hit that million dollars at all those three levels. Mm. And then there's renewal campaigns that you do, upgrade campaigns that you do, there's cultivation campaigns that you do. Um, the other thing that we teach, you know, when we're talking, so that's the evaluation piece, you know, when you're talking about how do you assess the organization, um, you know, that's, that's really the gist, the, the, in a nutshell, the gist of it, right? I, lo- I love that. And by the way, just before we move on to the, then, then what do you do? Um, I love that you're analyzing in this way, right? It's not just like stand up and just fundraise and whoever comes in, it comes in. And let's just say a million, a $5 million project. Hey, what the heck? Right. Um, I, I think there's a, there's just a, a um, I don't want to say a recklessness at times, but there's just definitely not conscious thought done at, at times when Muslims take on certain endeavors, particularly projects or uh, different organizations. So that, that's very nuanced. I, I appreciate that. Um, so then what? So then, uh, so then when it comes to the execution, how do they, what should they do? How do they execute in terms of, uh, at least yeah. I, I, think, I think a goal is like financial health. How do, how, does an, yeah. how do you get an organization to financial health? So a so, um, couple of things. One is that, um, you know, paradigm shift. Move. The research basically says that Muslims uh, uh, largely give emotionally and episodically, mm-hmm. right? Which, which that is a strategy that has worked, and there's nothing wrong with that. And if it is still working, and, and the prescription that I give to my nonprofits, by the way, is I say, don't stop doing what you're doing. Build build the new strategy for the future, mm. right? Uh, if something is working to a certain degree, it may not be working amazingly well, but it is still working and it's sustaining your organization. Right. You keep doing it and then you build the new system. But at the Lilly School of Philanthropy, one of the things that we teach and talk about and that we implement with nonprofits is we, is we help our, our nonprofits move from, from thinking about fundraising as having a fundraiser Mm. but rather and moving to thinking about fundraising as a system just like we think about accounting as a system Mm. in in a business Mm. marketing is a system you know these are business functions of an organization Mm -hmm. you know sales is a system it's a process right right um so 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 we we teach like in most of our classes even the center of muslim philanthropy the first hour or two our content is paradigm shifting content because when we first started delivering the content, we realized that our audience was in a certain paradigm 
and we're delivering content and they're not moving through the content well. Mm-hmm. We modified our curriculum to start off with paradigm shift, then building the blocks on the new system. Mm. So, so that's the first piece that you asked about how, how do we build financial sustainability? Well, number one, fund, move from thinking about fundraising being achieved with a fundraiser in a room with as many people as you can get mm-hmm. at the best time of the year mm-hmm. to thinking about your revenue, your fundraising as a system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then how do we build that system? So that's number one. Mm. And this system, this system basically has four major steps, mm-hmm. milestones or pieces in it, right? So number one is prospecting. So there's a whole bunch of activities associated with prospecting new donors, uh, mm-hmm. prospecting potential donors. The second step is cultivating. How do we cultivate these prospects to ready them to be, and this is the third step, which is solicit. So prospect, cultivate, solicit. And then the last piece, which is one of the most, most important pieces that we don't do as well job as we should, is stewardship. Mm. Right. Um, you know, I often stand in my classes and I'll ask this question and I'll say, how many of you are experiencing donor fatigue? And, you know, man, almost everybody in the class every single time raises their hand. Absolutely. And then I say to them, I say to them, I said, if I, I said, we believe donor fatigue doesn't exist. What actually exists is something called donor abuse. Mm. Donor abuse, donor abuse is the result of going to a person over and over and over again and asking them for money and you haven't stewarded them. Mm. And, and, and stewardship is how you fulfill the value exchange experience for a donor, Mm. right? Corporations, retail corporations don't have this problem. Whenever, uh, um, Apple sold, they had this iPhone, and Thayib gave Apple money. Now Thayib is experiencing value exchange with the iPhone. Right. The nonprofit problem is that the donor doesn't experience value exchange at the time the money is transferred. Mm. And if you're always going back to your donor and asking for money, and they're not experiencing the value exchange of your organization, then you can expect them to lose trust in you and to not be willing to donate to you anymore. Absolutely. They're going to donate where they experience value better. And that's the stewardship strategy that's built in. I love that. So those are those are four amazing ones. You you went into the stewardship and I and I love the the analogy and the thought there. What, so can you talk talk us through the other three? Prospecting. Uh, so the first one's prospecting, which is what? You're hunting for people that are believing your cause is essentially. So prospecting, uh, yes, prospecting is about identifying potential donors. And, you know, you know, I can't tell you how many times Rami, like non uh, organizations will contact us and say, Hey, can you help us with fundraising? I'm like, yeah. And I'll say, so what do you, what are you guys doing now? Or what do you need help? They said, we need help finding new donors. I'm like, uh, well, is it, what are you doing now? We're on social media. And, you know, we have 5,000 followers on social media, but we only have 150 donors. And, um, you know, there's this sort of notion that all the donors in the world are so easily accessible online. So we need to get online and do all this social media, and therefore they'll all show up and want to donate to us. But the reality is that's not how it works. What we teach, what we teach um, is is another paradigm shift Mm. that each each organization has something called a constituency universe. Mm-hmm. And your donors are in your universe. Your universe matters, not the internet universe, not the Facebook universe. Your universe matters. And this is somewhat of a page right out of basic marketing principles, which mm-hmm. is know who your customer is and know where they are mm-hmm. and reach them, right? So in this constituency, we do it in our class, we teach, and what I use and apply with the nonprofit that I work with is something called a constituency mapping exercise. And through this constituency mapping exercise, we fundamentally identify donor segments and 
there's a very important principle that we use when we go through the exercise and we teach called LIA, link interest and ability. You, you know, you might identify Bill Gates as a donor, right? So, so we, we can answer the ability question, right? But we don't, we don't know if he would be interested in our Islamic school, mm-hmm. right? But none of that matters if we're not linked with it. Mm. So when we're doing this constituency mapping exercise, we're asking, we're, we're solving, and we're pro- when we're prospecting, we're solving link, interest, and ability. Got That's it. the key fundamental question. Um, and then the other thing, you know, if you asked about cultivation, yeah, <clears throat> cultivation, cultivation, it, it, because we don't cultivate donors, we're also committing donor abuse. Mm. Cultivation basically means, you know, investing in discovering donor interest. Mm. The first, the first class that I took at the Lilly School of Philanthropy, the first introduction, one of the instructors and professors came out there and said, hey, raise your hands if you're a fundraiser. And the whole, everybody in the, everybody in the audience, including myself, we raised our hands. We said we're fundraisers. And she said, uh, she said, you know, by the time you finish my class, you will no longer call yourself a fundraiser because we at the school, we call ourselves dream makers. Mm. And I was like, what is she talking about? What we learned and now I'm experiencing is she said, donors have a dream of a better world. And our job is to discover their dream and help them bring their dream of a better world to life. Mm. And that's the principal concept behind cultivation. Mm. Cultivation is about discovering that prospect's dream of a better world and then learning about how that can happen and connecting their dream with our organization's cause and ability. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. So if you go... If you're, work, if you're if I'm cultivating a potential donor, right? Like for example, one of my brothers, right? You know, he as I'm investing time in cultivating him, I find out that he really cares about you know um, you know uh, convert care. This is the exact word he said. He goes, I care about convert care, um, and so now I know that if I have any of my nonprofits that I work with that are working in convert care, I have his interest. Yeah. I'm linked to him because it's my brother. And then I know he has the ability because, well, I won't say on the air why I know, but I do yeah. know I'm his brother, right? Yeah. So, so, but I'm not going to pick him like, you know, um, a project that doesn't link with, that falls outside the scope of that. Right, right. right. Absolutely. My, my, my father, for example, he principally believes in, in, in Mushit, Helping it build a mushes equals home and paradise. I can take him any mushes project on something about, and he'll always write a check, no matter you know whatever he can do. Mm-hmm. So, so cultivation is about uncovering the donor's interest mm. and aligning your organization's interest to that donor. Mm. Right? You know, so and then the other piece is solicitation. Solicitation is about the right person asking the right donor for the right gift at the right time in the right way. These are the six rights of fundraising, mm. the six rights, the right person asking the right donor for the right gift in the right way, in the right place. So these are the, these are the rights of, of, of fundraising. That's mm. there. So, you know, um, and board involvement is absolutely critical when we talk about major gifts, board involvement is huge. You know, board source. You know, these guys have done some amazing work. I think Oak Tree. You guys are. You guys are also. Um, um, you know, teaching about these subjects. But board source has done some great work on. You know how important it is that these boards, in addition to their other responsibilities, focus on major gift work. Mm. Um, so in those organizations where I'm coaching and developing the chief development officer, or I'm I'm building a development department for that organization, or I'm teaching all the staff and certifying them. You know, we talk about that. How do you engage board members and and involve them in the process of these four steps? 
I love it. I mean, that, that's um, tremendous, tremendous insights. Very, very valuable. Um, I, I, I mean, the breakdowns are, are, are really important. Again, I don't, um, it's, it's amazing that y'all are doing some of this amazing work. I think like there's such a gap in this area in terms of just, like you mentioned, education. I mean, we have a lot of experience, a lot of some bad experience, but, um, but we, we, you know, being educated, having that exposure, that mentorship, that coaching around us, and then, and then being able to kind of experience it. I think that that's, uh, I try to tie both of them together, but, you know, I, I think our, our institutions, our leadership just generally needs to understand uh, some of these mechanisms and how these work and um, tremendously insightful, tremendously insightful. So kind of just to kind of begin to, to kind of close on the conversation, what should, or what is the, uh, uh, the main place that somebody should start? Is it by getting trained on this? Is it by, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, getting somebody to be sponsored at a school? How, how do you advise uh, some an institution, a, a masjid, a Islamic school. How do you advise them to start? Where should they start in kind of sorting the, their financial crises or financial problems out? Yeah. <clears throat> so, so I'm gonna give, give you know three things. Number one, you know, when I finished my MBA uh, and and I and I came off the stage. I, I was one of the. I was uh, gave the the, the, the speech uh, at the graduation. I came off the stage. One of my professors and mentors, you know, basically said to me, "That they remember the arrogant mind doesn't learn." And I said to him, "I said, you know, what?" I looked at him like this, like, "What does that mean?" And he looked at me and he said, "You know, because it doesn't ask the right question, right?" And and so my advice is. You know, um, you know, uh, don't allow Shaitan to tell you that you've achieved success. Mm. That uh, th this is the biggest problem. You know, and I think, I think, and I'm working in the Muslim community and the non-Muslim community. And what I what I see that worries me, uh, and and I think I understand why it happened. Um, you know, because we started from nothing. And when you start from nothing and you work really hard and you get somewhere, yeah. you know, you know, where you are, you, you know, you, you, you just can't let it go and get protective. You, can't, you can't change it. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's, a, that's a success mindset. Right. Yeah. So that's my first piece of advice. Um, you know, is, is, you know, Woolworth, Sears Roebuck, you know, Kmart, you know, don't be like them. Don't think you're too awesome to fail. Yeah. Um, the reality is, is most American Muslim nonprofits, they don't have the revenue equal to the size of one quarter McDonald's. Mm. So this notion that we're so big, we're so awesome, we've got to abandon that. Mm. There's so much more. There's so much more you'll find as soon as you embrace the idea that you don't know mm. what you don't know. Mm. So go out there and learn it. That's number one. I love that. Um, yeah, number two, Number two, I would say, is um, uh, find out what you don't know. You know, uh, like you said, you know, uh, the easiest thing to do is go attend a seminar or a workshop. You know, go get some information. Um, that is the easiest thing to do. And Shaitan's going to fight you. Does not want you to be successful. You know, I tell my kids all the time. I'm like, you remember? I want you guys to remember two things. One. You have one enemy. No one else in this world is your enemy, period. You have one enemy. And then I tell them, remember, your enemy has one strategy, one recipe. That's it. And if you embrace this, you'll see him coming every single time. And that is the art of distraction. Mm. Right? So, so don't allow yourself to be distracted from the objective and the goal. You chase that goal down like you can taste it. So, so if you, once you've abandoned the idea that you know everything and now you're ready to go find the answer. Don't let anything distract you. Don't overthink it. Go find any workshop or any seminar by Oak Tree, by Center of Muslim Philanthropy, by Muslim Philanthropy Initiative or any other organization around fundraising, nonprofit management, and just go there um, uh, and attend that workshop. The third thing I would say is, is you don't have to go out and hire and recruit some, you know, amazing nonprofit 
magician from some huge nonprofit corporation that's got 50 years of experience. You don't need to do that, right? I already, the data already tells me that 90% of American Muslim nonprofits don't have enough resources to succeed. So don't take what little resources you have and go hire somebody for six figures or hire some consultant that's billing you seven figures an hour, yeah. um, you know, to, to just come in and tell you how to do stuff that you just can't get done anyway because you don't have the capacity. Mm-hmm. So my third recommendation is, is get a good coach. Mm. Get a good coach, right? Invest in a coach for your team. That's really what you need. Somebody who they can go to who isn't expected, uh, 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 who can coach them through the process of building a, uh, a fundraising system at your organization. Mm. So, so delete this idea from your mind that you just need some fancy fundraiser and get them in front of the largest audience on the planet and you're going to hit your budget or you're going to go find, you know, some Cinderella donor with millions of dollars that's going to, you know, just bankroll your organization for years and years and years. Those things, they could happen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can make anything happen. But what he expects of us is that we, we make high quality decisions and we plan and we execute as best as possible. And that's done by implementing a fundraising system. And you can do that with your own staff if you can get them some education and get them a good coach to take them through the knowledge in your content. I love that. Uh, amazing. Really, really amazing gems and extremely important, valuable information. I think this is um, definitely some of the, the best content that that, uh, that we've got somebody to come on and share, particularly in terms of organizational performance and how to transform themselves. Um, where can people access you? We'll put it in the show notes and kind of make sure that everybody has access to this. But where can people reach out to you for the work you're doing and, and kind of if they need any coaching or if they need any training, where should they go? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, to be honest with you, um, you know, uh, they can email me. And um, I do a lot of one-on-one coaching and mentorship, even through my WhatsApp. Uh, I've got folks who will send me voice notes, and I'll send a voice note back. Um, So uh, I'm comfortable with you putting my number out there. I'm all about capacity building in the American Muslim nonprofit sector. So, you know, know, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with you publishing my email, even publishing my cell phone and asking folks to come to my WhatsApp. You know, you could publish my LinkedIn or even intuitive.solutions or uh, muslimphilanthropy.org. Either of those you could publish. Inshallah, they can reach out. You can get on my schedule. My executive assistant knows to prioritize, you know, these sort of thought leadership conversations. So if you emailed, um, if you emailed me and said, hey, I'd like to get a half hour, an hour and say it's scheduled, you know, it will happen, inshallah. So please, please, please reach out. You know, um, you know, this is this is this is why I believe I'm here, and how I'm trying to get my ticket to Jannah is by, um, you know, helping others uh, become. You know, my vision statement for myself is I'm imagining a better world brought to life by high-performing individuals and high-performing institutions focused on creating social value, right? You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one last thing and you can cut this out or leave it if you yeah, want, man. Yeah, but a long, a long time ago, a long time ago, I was thinking about, you know, the story that, you know, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could send a sinning man or a sinning woman to Jannah for feeding a starving cat or a starving dog, then the ticket to Jannah is actually one sincere act, not even to a human being. And that drove me to think about how can I give out tickets to Jannah? How can, how can I engage people into pursuing one single act of service to humanity or to the animal kingdom? or to the world. And that's kind of what People Greater Than Profit is about, by the mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. People Greater Than Profit is about getting everyone, Muslims and non-Muslims, into adopting a People Greater Than Profit or a Purpose Greater Than Profit lifestyle. So 
Hey man, thank you very much. I, I love it. it. I love it. And may Allah bless you and, and give you strength and allow you to continue amazing work yeah, that you're doing. Yeah, and uh, may Allah too, accept man. from you and continue to allow um, you grow your capacity. You know, we yeah, uh, I, it's yeah, a quote that I, I, I say a lot at the, at the end of these interviews. May Allah make your back stronger so you can carry more. And I think that's uh, something that we hope and pray for, inshallah. Ta'ala. I mean, I mean, thank fikr. you so much, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Oak Tree Institute podcast. For more episodes, subscribe and follow us on Apple, Google Play, and Spotify. And for other content that we have, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube.